that psalm reminds us of the wonder and beauty of Christ and then the wonder and beauty of his bride. And that forms the context of our sermon today, Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 1 through 11. Hear the words of the Lord. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of the heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for a house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. When the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. That is the word of God. And may God bless the proclamation of it. From prayer to action. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, Nehemiah had actively investigated what was happening in Jerusalem. And then he responded. First he cried outwardly, showing his sadness. He mourned when he heard of the deplorable conditions of Jerusalem. Keeping in mind, Nehemiah wasn't even born there. But they were his people. They were God's people. So he fasted and prayed. He did this for about three months. Petitioning God for help for the situation there. He didn't have the temporary sadness that some people have and then they forget about the situation. No, if you read the second part of chapter 1, he confessed the sins of his people, even sins from the past. Indeed, the last sermon said... Nehemiah had a broken heart. But now it was time to work. 
And that's where we pick up today. Our headings are three, Nehemiah agonized over Jerusalem. Second, Nehemiah asked for help for Jerusalem. And then third, Nehemiah acted to help Jerusalem. Our goals are, brothers and sisters, today that you will learn to play your part and support leaders doing their part to promote Christ's kingdom and his worship. We begin first by looking at Nehemiah agonizing over Jerusalem. Now we learn that for more than three months, Nehemiah mourned and prayed for Jerusalem after he learned of the deplorable situation there. How they were exposed to dangers where thieves and murderers could go in at night. Wild animals could enter the city and attack the people. And when that happened, it meant worship was not taking place because the people felt unsafe. And he was concerned, not simply from an attachment to a particular country. And people do have those types of attachments. I know people who left my home country, Guyana, 40 years ago, and they talk about going home. And I always, I'm always stunned by that. What do you mean going home? You live here. Your children were born here. You have grandkids here. No, that's my home. That's not what this was. I'm sure there was some natural attachment to the land. But this is his, con- his concern was about the land from which the Savior would come to die for the sins of the world. That was the promise that God had given all the way back from Adam and then in the time of Jacob when he was about to die. And during the time of David that followed, it was Jerusalem. That's why it was special. Not an emotional attachment, but a deep attachment in his soul. And why was that so important? Because when Jesus would die for the sins of the world, there would be glory and praise that would go up to him. And that's what you must never lose sight of as a Christian. You're working for the glory of the kingdom of God. That's where we sit in the history of redemption. Now, back to our text. After a while, Nehemiah's face reflected the sadness that was in his heart. The problem is, as a steward as he was, he was not allowed to be upset in the presence of the king. In fact, when a steward would go to the king, they would have to put their hands over their faces to make sure that their breath did not pollute the king. But Nehemiah seemed, he was so overwhelmed, he wasn't thinking of what he should do, and the king saw his sadness. The king expressed concern for Nehemiah's face in verse 2 and inquired about why he was so sad. You could tell from this the king liked Nehemiah. He didn't punish him. He could have been killed for being sad in the presence of the king. But Nehemiah surely was a good man. And that's the thing. You're living godly life while you wait for God to call you for whatever he's going to call you to do. And so the king liked him, didn't want to lose him. Nehemiah's faithfulness shone through. And remember, to mention the last time, he was a Jew. And the king didn't take one of his own people, didn't even take a family member to be the one who would taste his food. He didn't trust them. He trusted this man because his life was that of faithfulness. But knowing the king's sadness, we see something else. Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid. He knew he had to act quickly to pacify the king. 
And he did. Now I want you to pay attention closely to what Nehemiah does here in verse 3. Nehemiah expressed his sadness that the tombs of his ancestors were destroyed. Why is that significant? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, Nehemiah expressed his desire that the king would live forever. That would ameliorate, pacify the king's anger for being sad in his presence. King, you live forever. And then look at what he goes into next. Nehemiah did not talk about the hope of the coming Messiah. Why? That might have triggered an angry reaction from the king. You mean there's going to be a king who would be greater than I am? Keeping in mind this was the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Nehemiah didn't talk about Christ's coming. He didn't want the king to see that as a threat to his kingdom. More, you notice Nehemiah never mentioned Jerusalem. He just mentioned the ancestral tombs of his fathers. And why did he do that? Again, you see the wisdom of Nehemiah. Because earlier in Ezra chapter 4, we read that the king had stopped the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. He was afraid that the people would rebel. So Nehemiah in his wisdom didn't tell the king about that. Because his immediate response might have been, no, stop that. We don't want to deal with that anymore. Nehemiah rather talked about the great concern for his father's tombs so the king would empathize. Eastern men in general have a lot of interest in honoring the dead, mostly because they themselves want to be honored when they die, but they certainly had that interest. You see, the other things the king had no right to know. You know, just like you would say, somebody said, what's your PIN number for your, for your bank card? You wouldn't tell them that. And withholding that information is not a lie. That's not information to which they are privy. They're, they don't have a right to that, and therefore you don't have to tell them what they don't have a right to. That's the wisdom of Nehemiah and what he did. So that's the situation, first of all, we see in this uh, first point. Nehemiah was agonizing he was sad in the presence of the king. And then the king uh, opened up the opportunity for him to respond. What can we learn here? First of all, a good moral example is to learn to care for those who are sad. Ask why someone is sad. You might save a life. You never know what people might be going through. And you can be a help to them. Second... When the church is in a sad state, as it is now, acknowledge that it is, and continually mourn and pray for her. If you don't pray, it means you don't understand the power of God, or you don't believe that God has the power to help. I hope you see, first of all, that the church is in, the is in trouble. The weakness of the church, the church is getting smaller, not bigger. And the churches that even exist, they've compromised in many, many ways. But don't just get emotional and then stop. Grab some brothers together. Say, let's pray. You don't have to wait for the elders to organize a prayer meeting. 
You have a few brothers just say, we can meet online. We can just gather together and, and pray together. Have a heart for God's people. Not the emotional response. I, I know when we, some years ago, we started a plan to help some of the brothers in Ukraine who had finished seminary, just to get them together to form a, a small federation. And there were some who just got all excited. And after two, three years, you could see the interest waning. Well, that's not how the kingdom is going to be built. You have to be committed, dedicated, being willing to sacrifice for it. And that leads to my third application here. Learn to think of the kingdom. Getting the big picture. See, we don't live in an island by ourselves. Nehemiah had a perfect job. He had money. He had influence. He was meeting important people. He dressed properly in the presence of the king. And yet his concern was for much more. He was thinking of the glory of God. He was thinking of Christ's church. And then he did what he needed to do to save Now Nehemiah moved from that agony, that internal sadness, that crying before God, he then asked for help. And see how help starts, right? It starts on the inside, it comes to the mouth, thoughts, words, and then ultimately you see the action when he goes to Jerusalem. So what did he ask for from verse 4 and following? God worked in the pagan king's heart because of Nehemiah's persistent prayer and asked Nehemiah what he wanted. The king had no use for the God of heaven. He had no interest in Yahweh. But he asked the servant of Yahweh what he could do for him. Isn't that incredible how God worked? You know the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he directs it. Proverbs 21.1 Wherever he wishes. The kings of the earth like Cyrus. God visited him one night in a dream and said, send my people back. What did he do? He sent God's people back. Even before him in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who stood up in defiance against God and God made him like a wild animal. You see, when he returned, read that prayer sometime in Daniel. You would see his response and he acknowledged that Yahweh was the God of heaven and earth. And he made that true God made the world work in the favor of the Christian. Now before Nehemiah petitioned the king, he asked God for help. That's the beautiful thing. Verse 4, and the king said to me, what do you request? And then here's the part. So I prayed to the God of heaven. In the presence of the king. Now it doesn't mean he had to fall on his knees and raise his hand towards heaven and say, God, what will you ask me to ask the king? You could pray in your heart. You're in the car, you know, when you drive around in Toronto, you will pray a lot. Keep your eyes open, but you will pray a lot because there are dangers all around with the crazy drives. It wasn't appropriate to do that, but he prayed in his heart and he recorded us saying, I prayed before I asked. I asked God for wisdom to know what to ask for. And then he humbly and boldly asked the king to allow him to go back to repair the city of his ancestors' tombs. Was this really humble? Yes. Look at verse 5. He said, if it pleases the king. That's humility. 
He didn't make any demand. And look at the second phrase. I'm your servant. So I'm depending upon you. You see the wisdom in which he used? Didn't make demands. But he spoke up. In a humble way. He knew that if he had that attitude. It would make him more amenable. To Nehemiah. Nehemiah would become more amenable to him. You know, if a king asked me what you want, the first thing you would think of probably is, how about more time off? How about a raise? How about less working hours? He didn't ask for personal things at all, did he? Because he was concerned with something that was much bigger than himself. It wasn't about him. It was the land from which Jesus would come to live and die for the sins of his people. So while he was humble, we also see a degree of boldness. He said, let me, a servant, let me go back and rebuild the city of my father's tombs. Again, he still didn't mention Jerusalem because that would have been a trigger for the king. He said, let me go and rebuild the city of my father's tombs. And then the Bible included something. He said, the, he wrote the queen was beside him and you think why did God include that in the scriptures there, there are no extra words in the Bible the Bible it didn't have there were no fill in words there was a purpose behind that no doubt uh, Nehemiah was well known to the queen and having the queen beside the king a providential act would have encouraged the king and she would speak in his favor and then the king agreed Agreed that he could go back on his trip to Jerusalem. How long did he go back to Jerusalem? Do you know? He spent almost 12 years there. At different tri- on different trips. Who gives time off like that? Imagine your boss giving you 12 years of time off with pay. Doesn't happen, does it? But look how God worked. You see, that's the power of God. It looked like that would be impossible. After all, he was just a servant. And God furnished him with everything he needed. You know why? Nehemiah was thinking beyond himself. He was thinking about the God and his glory. And so the Lord blessed him in his work. And so successful he was. And seeing the approval for the king and his amenability, Nehemiah then did something incredible. He asked for more. He asked for letters of passage that would allow him free travel through the different territories. He didn't end there. He said, I need wood. I need big beams for the king's forest to rebuild the gates of Jerusalem, to repair one of the buildings attached to the temple, and even for a house for himself while he lived there. And even when he was petitioning the king, look at the beauty of verse 8. The last line he said, And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God. God moved the king. He was saying, May the king live forever, and you're a wonderful king. But he knew who was behind it. It was God. This unfortunate servant was the means that God used In making an entire nation rich. Because business would be restored. And secured the place from which Christ would come. And God is not against that. 
the Lord Jesus used fishermen to make to turn the world upside down God used a prophet like Joel think of some of the ordinary men shepherds poor shepherds and use them for good why because they were pursuing the glory of God so what can we learn from this second point we learn first of all that he agonized over uh, Jerusalem but then he asked for things you see how the progress starts on the inside it comes to the outside what can we learn here first of all God has power over all the earth's leaders. Let that knowledge fortify you when you have to confront wicked men. Let it guide you when you pray for our leaders. When you pray for a prime minister or a premier. Know that God has power to change their hearts. Don't give up on them and say it's hopeless. Even if they don't believe in God. God can still use them to do good things. Just like he used Pharaoh Nebuchadnezzar. And how he used Cyrus. Don't lose hope. God has power. Second, it is always right and proper before making any big decision that you must ask God for help. Change of career, wanting to get married, considering ministry or serving as a leader in the church. Pray before you make that decision. Never go about anything without prayer. Third, know the difficulties that the difficulties that pastors and elders go through and even if you don't know they do pray for them the burdens of the heart are many you know right now there are a couple of ministers who are struggling survive to survive in ministry that I know about in the URC See, Pastor Angema here, I'm sure you'll testify to the difficulties and the burdens you carry. Don't sleep well at night sometimes. You never know. I'm standing before you today as dealing with, on Wednesday, I found out that a friend of ours who died a few years ago, his wife died. I got to know them quite well. Then Thursday I found out that uh, one of the members of our congregation overdosed and died. And then on Friday I'm evangelizing a Vietnamese man and he said his 55-year-old sister who was preparing to get married after six years her husband died. She was killed, likely by her 20-year-old son. When you pile on all of these things, and I'm not even telling you all of it you will get the pastor Lord willing remember him there are lots of things that are going on pray for them support them I hope you prayed for me before you came today pray for Pastor Park who will be preaching tonight you never know what's going on you know we have a job that not only requires that we have an education and can stand up in front of people and speak. But we have a job that requires spiritual preparation. We have to have our lives right with God before we stand before you. Which kind of job requires that? It makes it difficult. Your elders who have to make decisions about sometimes excommunicating someone from church. That's a tough decision to make. You go to bed and you don't sleep very well. Every elder will tell you that. 
pray for them. Well, there are a couple more lessons. Uh, first of all, be willing to ask help of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Ask man, ask God to help them. Even beg, because you love your brothers and sisters. Doing this will advance the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, many times people in Africa or India, or Asia for that matter, they may be poor, but they're providentially poor. It's not because they're worse or worse sinners. You just happen to be rich. You just happen to be on the richest country in the universe right now. That's how rich Canada is. Many places, they don't have what you have. Is it because we're better? No. That's why you should remember you're placed in a providential position to help and serve in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then third, Nehemiah, uh, or sorry, uh, last one. Nehemiah was then in an unfortunate situation. A servant, but it was the means that God used to bring good to the people of God. Don't despise the circumstances of your life. God is sanctifying you. We talked about this the last time. Sanctifying you in a way so that you could be a blessing to his church. It doesn't matter where you are. You could have been raised in a third world country in a little island. And the island in which I was born was in, named by the Dutch. And it was called the, the island without a name. That's how unknown we were. And yet the Lord can raise a little kid from a backward place to do good for his people. God will use you too. You've been already much more privileged. Don't think that God can't use you. Nehemiah was likely eunuch. Couldn't have a family. But did he ever have a family? He had a lot of blood brothers. Those who had the same blood of Jesus Christ as theirs. Let's move to, uh, let me give you a couple more examples. It doesn't matter if you're a day laborer, you're a manager of a company, you're a housewife, you're a youth. God uses anyone for his kingdom's good. Final point, Nehemiah then acted to help Jerusalem. He agonized, he asked, and then he acted. Verse 9 to the end. Not wasting any time upon getting the letters from the king, Nehemiah crossed the Euphrates River, that's called the river, and headed west, presenting the letters to, of commendations and the lawful orders to cross and to get the wood he needed. And incredibly, the king even sent captains and horsemen to ensure Nehemiah's safety. God provided more than he even asked for. And then Nehemiah moved from being a servant to a governor. But when he got there, he faced trouble immediately. He knew there were enemies and he would have to face them. But they came right at the very beginning. And he mentioned a couple of them. There was Sambalat the Horonite. He was like the half-breed of the of Jewish people. In 722 BC, when the Assyrians took away the northern ten and a half tribes into slavery, they took half the people and brought half pagans and, and put them in place to make sure they neutralized the Jewish people. And Sanballat was one of those half-breeds. And then there was Tobiah. Tobiah was a former slave from the other side of the Jordan. He was an Ammonite. And remember, the Ammonites would have come from the um, seed of 
the ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughters. So they were still related to the Jewish people. There was also Geshem the Arab, the one who had been related by Ishmael. And it looked like the people who opposed them the most were the people who were related to them. And they joined together to stop Nehemiah. Their envy caused them to pursue deadly mischief against Nehemiah. But Nehemiah went there with a purpose. And he was not going to be distracted by the enemies. He stayed there, the Bible says, three days. So he could adequately survey the needs and assess what needed to be done. To secure the walls, to preserve the people so their business could thrive again. And most of all, to promote the worship of God so the land would wait for Messiah to come. What can we learn from this third point? There are four things I want you to consider. First of all, don't be surprised if God uses ordinary people to show you favor. He controls the hearts of the king. He can work in your boss's heart to give you that promotion. He can provide the right spouse for you that you don't deserve. There's hardly a man I've ever met who said, I deserve the life of God. I'm so special. No man says that. Not a godly man. We realize that we get from God what we don't even we don't deserve to have the wonderful wives that we have, but he gave them to us. That's how good God is. So he can provide the right spouse. He can bring back your strange child. You have a child or a spouse that has wandered from the faith. Don't be surprised. God has that power. Second, know that there will always be opposition to the work of God. It's naive to think that the world will like us. They pretend to like us. It's like if you are have Muslim friends, many times they appear to be the nicest people in the world. Make them in charge and then you get to see the reality of what they do. There's always opposition. And you know, you may be mocked as a woman for submitting to your husband. Remember some years ago, there was a lady in Pickering who... Uh, C.S. showed up at her house and she said, I want to wait until my husband came home. And the news report was that she had a master-slave relationship. That's how they characterized it. Because she wanted to submit to her husband. People will object of your love for worship. Why waste Sunday in church when you could be doing something else? And then you people go Twice. You should be doing something else. Fishing is what Sunday was made for. As the American TV announcer says, Sunday was made for football. Well, that's not the Christian. They'll mock you for what you do. People will object when you raise your children to fear of the Lord. You spank your children. You mean you don't count to 300 and then wait and hope they get better? What are you doing? I'm making a mockery of them because they deserve that. That's what Elijah told the, the prophets of Baal. Where's your God? He's in the bathroom, isn't he? Let's remember whose we are. They will oppose our work. That's okay. Instead, third, take time to assess what the needs are in the church and how you can help. Look at the church. Take the time. Where are my gifts? How do I fit in? What can I do? And you all have something to do. I often remind people even the beautiful big toenail that nobody pays any mind to is important so you could walk properly. How many people spend time admiring their hair? 
you'd do uh, their toenail, they would their hair, they would make sure their makeup is good and their suits fitting good. But who spends time and on the toenail? And yet the toenail is so important to walk. How do you fit in? Think about that. And more fundamental, the church needs people who are specialized in thinking. Hear me now. Thinking. Those who would study and assess so we can keep the big picture of our mission on earth. You know, if everyone, as, as I believe it was Matthew Henry says, we often fight in detached parties. We don't keep the big picture of what we need to do. We need people who can give good advice to see what the needs are, to understand the weakness of the church and the plan on meeting those weaknesses. We need to get these men or we will die. We can't survive fighting the way we are. You need to consider how God may serve you in this. And encourage others. Encourage the elders and ministers to sit down with others and talk and plan so that the church of Jesus Christ can be properly equipped for good work. Let's conclude. Nehemiah, even though things were going well for him personally, wealth, influence, he agonized about the situation among the covenant people of God. And so he mourned, he, he cried, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. But then he asked. He asked the king for permission to go to Jerusalem and request the supplies. Boldly requesting supplies so he could rebuild the walls. So the people could be secure. So they could prosper and even more. So they could worship God as they waited for Messiah to come. And he then acted. He didn't just ask and say, well, let me enjoy some holidays first. Let me wait until I'm old. Then I will get involved. Let me retire. He left immediately. Assessed the work that needed to be done. And then they would press forward in it. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, final thoughts before we leave. Never forget the church of Jesus Christ. She is Christ's bride. Read that Psalm 45 again. And look at the wonder of it. Read the songs of Solomon and picture the passionate love that Christ has for his church. And then ask yourself, do I want to treat somebody's bride that way? Let alone my Savior's bride. John Calvin put it well. God is your father. The church is your mother. Who treats his mother that way? Who doesn't help with the chores around the house? Yes, the church is in bad times. She needs your help. You need to be a part of her. Don't be bogged down by the troubles in your life so that you don't have time for the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord may be refining you when you're going through troubles, preparing you for the mission, a mission that's bigger than you are. Remember, it's about the kingdom. It's not about you. It's not about Salem. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then pray for her. And then speak to her where she's weak. And then speak for her. As her representative. Remember what the psalmist says. If I forget you O Jerusalem. Let my right hand forget its skill. And in another place. If I forget you O Jerusalem. May the, my tongue cling to the top. Or stick to the roof of my mouth. May I never be able to speak again. So don't forget the church. What happens if you forget the church? If you forget the church. The work of the cross will come to nothing. And Christ will be robbed of his glory. You'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But if you remember the church. And you serve her. 
praise and glory and honor will go up to the risen Savior. That's the purpose for which you came. Finally, Nehemiah had hope in the coming Messiah that he would come and die for the sins of the world. His job was to make sure the way was clear for Messiah to come. And Messiah did come and did die. Do you know him? Do you know him as your prophet, your priest, and your king? You know him, you live. You don't know him, you're lost forever. Make the introduction.